you would, join me in prayer for them. All right. Father, we're taking a pause in a busy weekend, busy service, um, busy life. And Lord, we acknowledge that prayer is powerful. And Lord, this family needs our prayers. Uh, we, 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 we look to you to be their great provider, to be their great protector. We look to you to be the one that will take their hearts and meld them to ours. Lord, we know you have a way of moving people around to accomplish their wills, so your will. So in this case, Father, we ask that all their strengths and weaknesses, all their challenges and their victories would be ours. That we receive them as, as the leadership of this church in this area of student ministry, for one, but in, in a larger way as a pastor. He is coming on, his family's coming on as ministerial leaders. And we see them worthy not only of the, of the position and, and the title, but we see them worthy of our fellowship. Your word says a lot about leadership, says even more about fellowship, and we want to follow as we lead. And there's a great uh, paradigm shift that has to occur, and it's already been occurring over the last 20 years, and that's getting children's and students' ministries back into the home. The power of a mother and father to model, children to mimic what their parents do, and for better or for worse, that happens. And Lord, we want to leverage that. And Nate and his family not only believe that, own that, but they are skilled at helping others. So as we are a church of spiritual trainers training others, I pray that we would embrace his training, his skills, his spiritual gifts, his uh, knowledge, his leadership, because it comes from you. It clearly comes from you. This is not his path. This is your path. This is not his church. This is your church. And we are your sheep. And we thank you for giving us another shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As the children make their way out and as Nate and his family go take a seat, I want you to open up your Bibles to Hosea chapter 13. Hosea 13. 16 verses. We started it last week. We're going to start about verse 9 and find our way down through the end. If you are a guest and you did not bring a Bible, we are a Bible-centered church. You're going to be a little lost if you don't have a Bible open. If you didn't bring one, that's okay. There is a free Bible app called YouVersion. Um, you can go to your app store, just type in Y-O-U version. And when you download it, there will be a tab that says events. When you click on that, here's a little clue in, that has all the notes, all the things you're going to see up on the screen. It even at the bottom, if you'll scroll down the bottom of that events tab where our church is at, it gives you all the blanks. And so if you ever get out of here and maybe you had a, a brain freeze or you were thinking about how, how bad you feel if the Cowboys aren't playing the next couple of weeks and you got a little sidetracked and uh, you missed a blank, um, you can look those up later um, in, the, in the week. You can see the blanks there on that app. All right, so this text is the second to the last. This is the, what we call the penultimate chapter before the ultimate chapter. Chapter 14 is going to be... Uh, you've enjoyed Jose, you're going to love chapter 14. Chapter 13, though, gives us some things that we need to hear one last time. Maybe you're kind of sick and tired of how this text has made it very clear that you're sick and tired. The Bible is very clear about your nature. It is a sick nature. It is a tired nature. It is a nature that is never satisfied. It is a nature that has actually a bent. It has a, a, uh, steering wheel alignment issue. Your steering wheel wants to go into the ditch. 
Um, I was driving around last night in the rain apocalypse, <laughs> got hit by some uh, hail coming in to Sour Lake and where we live now, and, and uh, I saw vehicles off to the side, some in ditches, and I thought, you know, that is human nature. This text tries to wake you up, especially nominal Christians, Christians who are lackadaisical in their faith. This is a chance. Every Sunday, hear this, every Sunday is a chance for you to reset Every Sunday is a chance for you to have a peaceful transfer of power from your life to God, where you look to him for leadership, not yourself. You take all your impressions and ideas and goals and dreams, and you lay it on the table. And then you take out your checkbook, and you write a blank check to God, and you say, God, do whatever you want to do through my life. Wherever you want me to go, whatever it'll cost me, wherever I can be and and grow, that's where I want to be. This is, every Sunday, a chance for you to hit the reset button. Some of you have been led by everything other than God. Some things that are good, some things that are bad. You've been led by appetites, you've been led by politics, you've been led by loss. Some of you have been led by mental struggles. Some of you have been led by loneliness. Some of you have been led by other leaders who are not leading you according to scripture. Some of you have been led by minors this week. Instead of majoring in the majors, you've You've done all sorts of things, and they feel okay, but they're not God's will for your life. And so right now, can your attitude be, as we look at this text, to hit the reset button and to open your ears? He who has ears, let him hear what the Word of God says. God is speaking through the written Word, and a Christian comes to the Bible illuminated to its truth that it is what they need to hear, just like the timeliness of the Jordan family joining us. There is a timeliness and orchestration every Sunday where you, and I prayed for you this week, that you'd have a sense of destiny towards this text. Because some of you are on a path of destruction, self-destruction, self-ruin. You have been on it for a while, and you don't think it's that big of a deal, but it's going to lead you into a ditch in life if you're not already in that ditch. And this text is a wake-up call for that. I spent some time last week talking about this little book called The Adventures of Pinocchio by Carlo Collati. I read some more of it this week. This book is very unlike um, Walt Disney's version. Walt Disney uh, wrote and and produced uh, Pinocchio after French philosopher Rousseau said man is basically a blank slate and they're basically good and that if you just train them, they'll be a good little boy. (laughs) You read this, it doesn't read like a Walt Disney movie. Uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3 uses words of Pinocchio like, like he is uh, a rascal, he is wicked, he is wayward, he is, um, uses other terms that you don't see in the movie. Now this is from the very beginning, right? From the very beginning, he says this stick that has turned into a puppet is, um, is, is a scoundrel. That's a word he uses, I think, in chapter 2. He's a scoundrel because that's how we're all born. Right? If, you've ever, if you have kids and you remember what it was like when they were two and three and four, um, it was very clear that the sin nature was alive and well. Maybe even from birth, you saw it as they wanted what they want, when they wanted it, how they wanted it, and they weren't going to let you stand in the way of them. Right? Amen. And his kids are like eighth grade, and they're still like that. All right? And you see it rear its head even worse, right, in those junior high years, high school years. And then somewhere there has to be a wake-up call. In the case of this book, we talked about how it ends in a positive way. Did you know that 
Kaladi wanted to end his uh, adventures of Pinocchio like a tragedy. And his editor who helped him write it told him, talked against it, but he actually wrote an ending. And the ending is when uh, in that, in that uh, um, oh, they were in the, the, the carnival and there's the, they're turned into donkeys. He gets turned back into a stick and the fox and his henchmen burn Pinocchio to ashes. And that's the end of the book. That's how he wanted to end this book. Because many stories end like that. They don't end good. They're not Walt Disney worthy. This book ends with an answer to a prayer. Maybe it's your prayer. On the back cover it says, I am sick of being a puppet. It is time I became fill in the blank. Here it's a boy. For some of you it's time I became a man. I became a woman. I became the wife that I need to be. The mother, the husband that I need to be. The dad that I need to be. If that is your heart, you're in a good text. This text will help you avoid some slippery slopes in the apocalypse of self-destruction that you are and many are already on. So we've looked at two conscious choices we make. The first is you consciously choose to indulge, self-indulgence rather than get God exaltation. Instead of humility, you just want honor. You honor me, 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 me. I mean, the me monster takes over and we looked at that. What appetites do you feed Anything that's an appetite that you feed, that becomes an idol for you. And in this text, idolatry is nothing. And he compares it to some nothings that they would have have understood. Morning dew that the sun burns away, chaff that the wind blows away, smoke that disappears in a winter night out the window and is seen no more. See, Hosea is saying that those things you give your life to, that entertainment, that materialism, that, that adventure, that... Whatever it is, that house, that car, that job, that affair, that website that you give your life to, it is nothing. And when you swallow that, right, you become what you eat, right? Idols are nothing and those who worship them become like them nothing. You are what you eat. That was choice one. Choice number two, self-destruction, choice number one, self-indulgence, idolatry. Number two, it's that if... This is by default. If you choose to not let God's saving plan be your plan, you are choosing self-destruction. When you have right before you the very thing that could save your marriage, save your children, save your job, save your finances, save your life, and you say, God, I don't want it. I'm going to go look for another answer to my problem. That is you choosing self-destruction. Now, we don't like to think of it that way, but that's the case. If someone throws you a life preserver, a life buoy, and you say, I'm going to wait till the next one comes through. You're jumping off a plane of a a broken marriage and and somebody hands you a parachute to save you and you say, no, I'm going to go down with the plane. You're an idiot. This text will say that. It will say those people that have salvation in front of them and they choose to not take it, they're stupid. I'm not making, this is what this text will say towards the end. It's like a stupid child that will not follow the good wisdom of a parent who just wants them to be safe, secure, and, and make something of themselves. But we do it. I call you stupid because I, I'm stupid. The very thing I should do, I don't want to do. And the very thing I don't want to do, that's the very thing I find myself doing. That should sound familiar. Romans chapter 7. So choosing self-destruction rather than God's salvation. God asks, he's basically in this text, he says, where did I fail you? Where did we go wrong? The, he, he comes to the conclusion, the, the problem is not that I failed you, but that you 
that I was so successful with you. Look at verse 6. They had their pasture. I gave them pasture. They became satisfied. And being satisfied, their heart became proud. And what does it end with? Therefore, they forgot me. You became a fat cat, so full of yourselves. You were blessed and satisfied. And that became part of a huge lie that made you ignorant of my plan. You became so satisfied that you bit into the lie that prosperity is a guarantee of security, health, and leisure. And it's not. The only antidote is to remove the prosperity and draw people back to a place of God dependence. That's it. See, a dad, a good dad, gives by taking and takes by giving. Let me explain that. A good dad who sees spoiled children before them, can't, you cannot solve their spoiled nature by giving them more of what you're giving them. You've actually got to pull back in order to teach them what it's, what's most important. And so in our house, we'll say no screen time for the rest of the day, the rest of the weekend, um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how when it comes to the toys that we buy and the things that we do, that there has to be moderation lest they think that those are the things that makes life matter. The most important things in life aren't things. And when my kids begin to think that the most important things in life are things, the only way a good dad can answer that is to take the things. But then again, there's another path, and that is to take by giving uh, maybe your father did this. Maybe your grandfather did this to your mom and dad. I don't know, but the story of the, the cigarette in the closet, right? They catch a child, a teenager smoking a cigarette, and they put him in a closet, and they take the whole pack and say, you can smoke that cigarette. Matter of fact, you're going to smoke all. What, how, I don't even know how many there are in a pack. Some of you know, don't tell me. <laughs> um, you're going to smoke them all, and of course, they get a stomach full, and they vomit it. And that's what happens. That's what happened in Israel. He said, you want meat in the wilderness? I'm going to give you so much quail that you're going to vomit it up and you won't eat quail ever again in your life. So God says, you want your will to be done? I'll let you have it. And that will be your tutor. See, in this text, we see that unfold here. Your life, God uses trials and treasures to expose your heart and where you need your help. And in your trials, we tend to turn to God. But in our pleasure, we don't. And so God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work it in such in your life that whether in trial or in triumph, you will be dependent on me. God is gearing things to that level. So let's get to the third choice. Here's the third choice that we make that leads down a path of self-ruin. It's choosing self-lordship or a human king rather than the king of kings. See, once you've indulged, once you've chosen to ignore the salvation that God provides, the rescue for marriage, life, sin, hell, the grave, once you choose to ignore that, all you're left is a vacuum, and who's going to lead you except you or an Obama or a Trump or Hillary? Look at verse 9. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. All the blame is laid on them. They are heading to national suicide. Here's what he's saying. Your destruction is that you are against me. I made the limb, you got out on the limb, and then you saw the limb behind you. And you are destroying yourself by biting the hand that feeds you. In verse 9, God describes himself as a helper. But they have rejected it, him and they've turned against him. Three other times in the Old Testament, God is described as our helper. Right, Psalm 10, Psalm 30, Psalm 54. Here's what Psalm 10 says. God is your helper to those who are fatherless. 
Psalm 30 says he is the helper to those who deserve punishment. And you know your goose is cooked. He is your helper when you feel that way. And then Psalm 54, he is a helper to those who are being pursued by their enemies. And Israel is that. They are fatherless. They deserve punishment. And the Assyrians are at the gate of Samaria knocking on the door. And God says, I'm your helper. And they ignore him. They turn to other kings. Look at verse 10. You turn to a king. Where is your king now? That he may save you and all your cities. You put all your hopes in the military. You put all your hopes in the economy. You put all your hopes in politics. Your culture, your politics are without God. So let it come running and see what it can do. It will fail you. Prompted by desire to be like the other nations, Israel said, we want a king other than you. See, that, that's what they were saying. We want someone to lead us other than you. And it was a request that built up the ire of God towards it. He wanted to destroy them. And in a conversation with Samuel, God says, okay, I'll give them a king, but it's gonna be a king that I give them in terms of wrath. That's the next. And your judges of whom you requested, give me a king and princes. Look at the next. I gave you a king in my anger. And took him away in my wrath. Wow. See, you had, they had a leader. He was not a king. His name was Samuel. He was at the end of verse 10. The language of judges points to a time. These were not, these were not uh, judges, black robes, sitting on benches. They did a little bit of that. But the judges were the leaders right before the kings. And these were, these were um, you know, these uh, Rambo types, they were warriors, they were leaders of armies, and Samuel um, never failed him. Did Samuel ever fail them in battle? No. What was their problem with Samuel? Samuel did too much preaching. They didn't want that. They, they wanted a king who would lead them militarily, lead them politically, lead them as a nation. They wanted a king like the Gentiles. Samuel did too much preaching. They wanted a secular king, but they they wanted that king to do it, all that they wanted him to do without God. We can stick God over here in the temple and we can ignore him for the most part. We can live our lives as we see fit, enjoys the blessings of God. We can know that he's there, but we do not have to bow when we have that kind of king. And so God says, God says, I gave you what you wanted. I gave you Saul. Do you know what the word Saul means? It's a word that means you asked for it. <laughs> Literally, it means asked for. You asked for a king. You wanted, you wanted somebody handsome, somebody tall, somebody wealthy, somebody strong who could lead. I'm gonna give you a guy for 40 years. Did you know most of those guys served 40? It's an easy number to remember. Samuel was 40, served for 40 years. Saul, 40 years. David, 40 years. Solomon, 40 years. They all served 40 years. He said, I'm gonna give you a man and he's gonna have clout, but he is going to be ignorant of God. He's not even gonna know Samuel. He is going to be disobedient to God. He is going to be abusive. You're gonna to go to battle and he's gonna say, if you do not go to battle, I'm gonna kill your animals. That's what Saul said to the, to the army. He said, if you don't win, I'm gonna kill you. He was abusive. He said, I want you to take a vow. I want you to take a vow that you're not going to eat until you win. Then he began, began to be jealous. And Saul, Saul said, I don't care who wins as long as it's not that shepherd boy, David. 
Then he became ambitious. Then he went crazy. Then he went demonic. And then he went murderous. And then he gets to a place in his life, Saul looks for help. Where did Saul go when he got finally downwind of himself through the episodes with David? Where did he go? Do you remember? He went not to a Bible, not to a prophet, not to a priest. He went to the witch of Endor. He went to the occult. Then he becomes even more destructive. He gets his family killed. He gets himself killed. He gets his nation killed. And God says, have you had enough? I gave you the smart, good-looking, tall politician who had no idea who God is. And it failed you. It has a built-in failure rate. But now I'm going to give you another, a young shepherd boy from Bethlehem who will lay down his life for the sheep, a king of kings. You know, this next section of scripture here, as we read through it, it reads about it like another book. I went to Barnes and Noble's date night last night, went over to Barnes and Noble's, got a cup of coffee, went and saw a movie. It was really nice. I went and I saw Pinocchio and I bought it last night. Another book we were looking for, which they were sold out of, is Whole30. Right, bestseller. Anybody know that diet? Raise your hand if you know that diet. All right, good, like many of you. It's like the South Beach diet. Basically, on the front cover, it says something about resetting your gut in terms of sugar. You go no sugar for a while and kind of detoxes you, right? And in many ways, a worship service is a resetting of appetites. God's pain and the things that he lets you go through is meant to reset your attitude And I was looking for that. I didn't find it, but I did find this book. Another book that I think well represents this text, The Wizard of Oz. Um, I spent some time reading this, and I love love the language of the original. You don't see this in the 1939 uh, Judy Garland version of the movie. Um, It's very very pretty. It, It doesn't have a lot of the language. This book was written in 1900 by a man by the name of L. Frank Baum. And he writes in chapter 15 called The Discovery of Oz, The Terrible, something quite appropriate for a week of inauguration. He, re- he, reads, he writes this, as they come into the presence of the great and terrible Oz, they presently heard a voice seeming to come from somewhere near the top of the great dome. And it said solemnly, I am Oz, the great and terrible. Who do you, se- why do you seek me? They looked again in every part of the room, and then seeing no one, Dorothy asked, where are you? I am everywhere, answered the voice. But to the eyes of common mortals, I am invisible. I will now seat myself upon my throne that you may converse with me. Indeed, the voice seemed to just come straight from the throne itself. So they walked toward it and stood in a row while Dorothy said, we have come to claim our promise, O Oz. You made political promises on the trail, and now we've come to claim those promises. Sounds like this last week. What promise, asked Oz? Well, you promised to send me back to Kansas where the wicked witch was destroyed. When the wicked witch was destroyed, said the girl. And you promised to give me brains, said the scarecrow. And you promised to give me a heart, said the tin woodman. And you promised to give me courage, said the cowardly lion. Is this wicked witch really destroyed, asked the voice. And Dorothy thought it trembled a little. Yes, she answered. I melted her with a bucket of water. Dear me, said the voice. How sudden. Well, come to me tomorrow and I will have time to think about it. You've had plenty of time already, said the tin woodman angrily. We shan't wait a day longer, said the scarecrow. You must keep your promises to us, exclaimed Dorothy. And you know the scene. The lion roars. 
the Toto moves, the curtain falls down because Toto hits it, and there's this scrawny old man behind it who is uh, nothing like he's presenting himself. It is smoke and mirrors leadership. See, when you seek other leaders, when you seek human kings, they do, they will fail you. She asks, who are you? He says, I am Oz, the great and terrible, said the little man in a trembling voice. You don't strike me. Please don't hit me. I'll do anything you want to. Our friends looked at him in surprise and dismay. I thought Oz was a great head. And they go in and they eventually say, He's, he looks more than that. He's a humbug, <laughs> the scarecrow says in tone. All right, and at the end, I thought this would have been, been great um, to put on a Twitter feed. Oh, no, my dear, I'm really a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard, I must admit. And then the chapter ends with these words. This is what I really wanted to put on Inauguration Day. They agreed to say nothing of what they had learned and went back to their rooms in high spirits. Even Dorothy had hoped that the great and terrible humbug, as she called him, would find a way to send her back to Kansas. If he did what she was, if he, if he did that, she was willing to forgive him everything. In other words, I don't care what kind of guy he is, just as long as he gives me my perks. So that's what you do in relationship to kings. It's all about what they give you. But that is not how a king operates. A king is in control. A king controls. And you've got to be very careful about who you give your allegiance to. And so the slippery slope of self-destruction comes step three to who you give allegiance to. In the vacuum of not following God, if you give allegiance to yourself and you're just going to go based on what your gut tells you, or you give it to an earthly king, to, to a trump, and you say, whatever there is, whatever that goes, that's the way I'm going to go, you're going to be sorely mistaken. That isn't what the Christian does. It'd be wonderful if there was a people of the king of kings illumined to the Bible in all of its truth, and there is. It's called the church. And I am not your leader. Jesus is your leader. Nate is not, he is a under-shepherd, like I am an under-shepherd, and we follow Christ. And that's this text. It's great. Every organization needs a leader. Israel was no different. The problem was they already had a leader. They just didn't want him. They looked around to the nations around, and they wanted that leader. Verse 11, God said, I did it in judgment. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my anger. You remember how you felt? I remember watching the movie, The Wizard of Oz, and feeling so disappointed when her friend saw that the great and magnificent Wizard of Oz was exposed behind that curtain as a phony. Do you remember that scene? I just read most of it. Do you remember how you felt? The wizard spoke with much sound and fury, but he seemed to have little substance when the curtain was pulled aside. Did Jesus turn out to be that way in your life? No way. No one pulled the curtain back on him. In fact, the Bible says that he ripped it right into himself. When Christ died, the curtain in the temple separating people from the holy place, which was representing the presence of the Lord, it was ripped from top to bottom. And in his eternal love and forgiveness, he says, I'm here and I'm near. I'm not aloof. I'm not I'm not a vapor, I'm not smoke and mirrors, I'm the real deal, I've never let you down. And the rest of this text will say that God is faithful and he's worthy to be followed. Mm. So our only hope 
is to not go after the party line, to not have self-help book after self-help book, to not let marriage problems stack up day in, day out, year in, year out, and never go get marriage help and never get financial help and not look to spiritual leader. Every decision you make is a spiritual decision. Every check you write, every credit card swipe is a spiritual decision. And those that turn from self-lordship to the king of kings go to him for everything. I get so excited when people make appointments with me to have me talk with them about what's happening in their life to make a godly spiritual decision. Because that to me is a grand gesture of where they're finding their leadership. When's the last time you've gone to a spiritual leader, to a Nate and to a Chris and to a Mark and to a Jeff, elders in our church to go alongside of them and say, hey, I've got this decision. Rusty, can you help me with that decision? That is godly. That's what godly people do. So what does this look like in your life? It means you ask for help. You humble yourself and in your pride, you don't ignore the fact that the buoy, the lifesaver is out there. The people who want to help is out there. You take advantage of the people who want to help you. You don't say, I'm not going to bother Jeff. He's too busy. No, you go to Jeff. You go to Bonnie and you say, hey, I've got this thing in my life. Can you pray for me? What do you, what do you know about the word that it says? What does the Bible say about this situation? And when you do that, that is called spiritual leadership. And that's what it's called to be spiritual. <laughs> if you want to be spiritual, you got to go seek spiritual leadership. And when you don't seek spiritual leadership, you are not, I must not have been clear. When you don't seek spiritual leadership, you are not spiritual. Number four, here's the final point of this text. Choosing spiritual death rather than spiritual life. Now this is a little more of an umbrella comment. It's the idea that God has given you the life that you're to live. You're to live the life of the spirit. And when you choose to not be spiritual, you are choosing the spiritual path of death. It will kill your parenting. It will kill your marriage. It will kill you for eternity if you don't ever turn to Christ. And in the process, you find here in this text that the Lord reminds Israel that he is doing this for restoration, not just retribution. He says, I'm faithful. I haven't forgotten your sins, and I haven't forgotten my covenant. Look at verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim, I see it all. The sin, it's bound up like a book. Another metaphor his sin is stored up like treasure. Here God points out to them, the reason you find yourself in the position that you're at is not that God is not faithful, it's that you're not faithful. You have a bad marriage because of you, right? It takes two. You have struggles with your children because of them and you, it takes two. But I am the one, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. And if you come through me, the path is different here Right, Ephraim's sinful deeds are compared to a, a document that's been bound up and a treasure which has been stored up. And the point is it's being protected and it will all be revealed. Everything will be brought into account. This is meant to make you go, whoa. It's meant to make you go, man, I, I need to put a check on my brain and my heart. If, if God were to make a movie about your Wizard of Oz search, what would it be rated? Would it be rated R? Would it be rated PG? Would it probably not, right? It'd be rated X for many. If God made a movie of your thought life and the things you think and do, what would it be rated? It's meant to make you go, that question's meant to make you go, whoa, I need to 
reset. I need to hit the button to get back on track. Verse 13, the pains of childbirth come upon him. And their futility and their hopelessness of their situation, these tragic words are read. It's childbirth is here. What, what is it about childbirth that is like judgment? Some of you ladies are like, it felt like judgment. Right? What is it about childbirth that's like judgment? Well, it's all of a sudden, it's intense. It grows and increases. Is, is that the way childbirth is? Yeah. I remember our birth of our first child, Whitney. We, you know, they ought to hand you a user manual when you have a baby. It's, you know, when you're having a baby, it's like the last amateur sport. Like we were totally unready for that first kid. She came three weeks early. We thought we had time. It's about 5.30 in the morning and Wendy's water broke and she just thought she didn't quite make it to the restroom. And so she went back to bed. We went back to bed. About an hour and a half later, she's like, Chris, there is something wrong. And I, I called the doctor. I had her on speed dial there. I called the doctor from Baylor Hospital and in her, her, her best medical terminology, she said, she said, Chris, you're an idiot. You need to rush to the hospital. So I ignored the derogatory comment of her calling me an idiot. And I got excited because I-45, I've been dreaming for years that I-45 would be my Autobahn. And I'd had the, I'd had, I, we had the bags ready because we weren't that dumb, but we had bags ready. We grabbed our bags. We had an hour drive to Baylor Hospital. This was coming. Wendy's over there for, it's about an hour's drive. I made it in about 35 minutes. I'm doing about 100. My vision as a young man having this moment was that I'd hit the Wilmer Hutchison Ferris area, which is a huge speed trap going up I-45, and I'd have like 10 police officers behind me chasing me into Dallas. And I'm, I'm like, yeah, you know, I don't know what I'd have a sign up. Having a baby, chased. No one was on the road at that early in the morning. No one chased me, right? So, but I got to go fast as my wife is, she's, she's ready, all right? And the depth of my stupidity knows no, no bounds. We, I put her in a wheelchair. She can't hardly talk. I wheel her up to the eighth floor doctor's office. It's about 7.45 in the morning, and she's in full labor, and I didn't take her to labor and delivery. I took her to the doctor's office. The poor, little, untrained, non-medical receptionist went white. She's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I don't know. Apparently so. And so I wheel her down to labor and delivery. She comes in at an eight. She's ready. I mean, they say we could have had that baby within 10 minutes of rolling in there. Of course, they slow it all down because doctor was on the front nine of some golf. No, no, she was, she was coming in later and had scheduled other things. And the point being is that birth and labor is instant or it, it, it comes on you. It grows. It's all of a sudden and you got to get ready. Question. When is labor over? When the baby is delivered. When life comes. That's this text. When it gets so tough in the judgment that life comes out of that pain, that there is something birthed, all that stuff that's being thrown on you, all that work that God is doing to get a hold of you in judgment, that you have life. When you get so much pain that you look on him on whom they pierced and you make Jesus Christ yours, that you are delivered from yourself. You're delivered in life from your stupidity. That is why God gives you pain to bring you back. Look at this, verse 13. He is not a wise son, for it is not 
the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. It is a dumb kid who gets to the womb and says, now I'm going to go back here. Right? You don't let the child decide. That matter of fact, that happens almost every time. There's a major hesitation of that child to come out of the womb. And sometimes they have to pull. That's what happened with our child. She was turned, Whitney was turned sideways. And I, I was all excited. I had such heightened elevation in my ecstasy. I was so excited to be there and I was ready. And then the doctor pulled out these stainless steel forceps. And they were like this long. They were all shiny. And I'm like, you're going to do what with that? <laughs> and he said, well, your, your daughter's, uh, she's about five and a half pounds, but she has a 29 pound head. And I go, no, no, that's not true. <laughs> and they pulled her out, all right? She didn't want to come out. She's like, it's good in here. I'm, if you know her today, that's kind of how she is still. It's like, I'm cool, we're good. Here in this text, if the kid doesn't come out, the doctor said, if the kid doesn't come out, you could lose the mama and the child. Why did we not have wisdom coming out of the womb? Because we were children. When it comes to the time of crisis in your life, this nation cannot take the appropriate step of repenting and throwing herself into some new dependence on God. She needs a push. Some of you need a push. This text is meant to be a push. These people, these leaders are incapable of changing course. The baby has come to full term and this child does not want to be born. She does not want to repent. So God says, you are not a wise son, so I'm gonna have to keep hurting you. And I do it, and I do it, and you never repent. I try to give you wake-up call. Prosperity makes you worse. Pain should wake you. Do you know people who have had trial after trial after trial, and they're unrepentant? They're, they have no desire to follow God, but God just throws all sorts of stuff at them to get them to pay attention to them, to get them downwind of themselves, to heat up the wax in their ears so that they hear and they will not turn? That's this. So two symbols of divine discipline so far, a ferocious beast and a woman in labor. Let's look at the next one, verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? In other words, should I, should I let, let up, God says? Should I just let bygones be bygones, let the spoiled child just do whatever? Should I throw my hands up? It's my child. The answer is no. And the rest of this chapter 14 should... Baylor Bears in here should say, sick them. That's what it says. The rest of chapter 14, verse 14 is sick them. O death, shall I redeem them from death? Sick them. O death, where are, the, where are your thorns? Sick them. O Sheol, where is your sting? Sick them. <laughs> Do we know someone in the Bible who takes on himself death and thorns? Yeah, Jesus Christ on the cross. Compassion, it says here, will be hidden from my sight. What follows then is God saying, use these, don't hold anything back, these weapons of death and grave, let them roll. The monster is here, let it devour the people. He holds, here's the encouragement, he holds the keys to death and the grave. That's, he's in control, God's in control. And there's another passage that quotes this text. Do you, you remember that passage? 1 Corinthians 15. And it says in this text in Hosea, it's death, come on, where's your sting? Let, let the judgment come. But there comes a text in 1 Corinthians 15 where God says that all that was placed on Jesus so that death and the grave doesn't come to you. 
in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. And at that point, it will come about the saying, death is already swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, resurrection is what God has for you. He's already paid for it. He's already made it ready. And that's how he wants you to live. He wants you to live a resurrected life, not a spiritually dead life, a resurrected life. The sting of the bee's stinger has already hit brother Jesus. And once the bee has stung, it will not sting again. My graduation service or celebration, uh, mom and dad lived in Waco at that point, And we had a, they had a tent set up and a bunch of people gathered for my PhD graduation. It was great. There were bees everywhere. They had a bee problem. And Trinity, I don't know if Audrey was around. Maybe she was a baby baby, but Trinity and Whitney were outside and a bee hit Whitney and it stung her. And she starts, she falls. I'm like, what happened? She's falling over. And I go and I, I see the bee and it's still, it's still kind of stuck on her. And I pop it and I kill it. And I thought I killed it, right? I thought I killed it. A few minutes later, I see it get off the ground and hit Trinity. And of course, Trinity doesn't know that it doesn't have a stinger anymore. And she falls over like she's dying. And I'm like, where did it hit you? She goes, it hit me right here. I picked it up because it was dead at that point. I picked it up. I said, it has no stinger. It already hit Whitney. Such a great story. That's how it is for you. You you walk through a valley of a shadow of death right now, whatever it is you're going through, but it's just a shadow. Death has already fallen onto Jesus. C.S. Lewis observed, there are many There are a good many things which would not be worthy bothering about if I were only going to live 70 years, but which I better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. The miracle of resurrection changes everything. Changes everything. And some of you are looking at me like I got a third eye. You're like, I don't know what that changes. It changes everything. It's not about this world. It's not about what happens here. This is the... This isn't even the, pro, there's a book that my daughters love to read. One of them is reading the 14th volume of a series called The Will of Time. And the, the prologue is 75 pages. And she, she gets to chapter one. She says, that is not fair, 75 page prologue. Well, you recognize you're 75 years on this planet. It's just the prologue. Chapter one starts in the next life. That's huge. I love this story. You know, this story is, is, is one of my favorites because People just don't see things the right way. They see it the wrong way. They see it how they want to see it. And it's the story of two boys in Texas playing football out in the yard. And they're playing football out in the yard in Texas. And uh, a Rottweiler comes up and tries to attack one of the boys. The other boy's smart. And so he grabs a picket off of the fence, runs over to the Rottweiler, sticks it into his collar. This sounds horrible, but he twists it and breaks the neck of the Rottweiler, saving his friend. Right about that time, a reporter is there. A reporter comes out of nowhere, the Lexington Herald leader. And he said, he pulls out his pad of paper, and he says, young Longhorn fan saves friend from vicious animal. And the boy said, what, what? I'm not a Longhorn fan, because I thought we're in Texas. Everybody's a Longhorn fan. Pulls out his pad again. He says, Aggie fan rescues friend from terrible attack. And the boy looks at the pad again. I'm not an Aggie fan. He goes, I thought everybody in Texas was either an Aggie fan or a Longhorn fan. What are you? What are you? He says, I'm an Oklahoma Sooners fan. The reporter looked at him again with a different kind of face, took out a new sheet on his notebook, and wrote this. Little redneck hoodlum kills faithful family pet. 
you know, people see things the way they want to see them. He who wishes to save his life will lose it. He who wishes to lose his life for my sake will save it, Jesus said. If anyone wants to follow me, he must take up his cross daily and follow after me. You know, this, this text, this empty tomb of Jesus changes everything. On the screen, underneath the phrase empty tomb is a statement. I want you to say it. I can face today because I have a tomorrow. Some of you think your marriage has no more tomorrow. Your life has no more tomorrow. Your loneliness, your career has no more tomorrow. You have millions of tomorrows. And the temporary thing that you are going through right now, as hard and as unbelievably tough as it is, the Bible says compared to the future glory is a whisper. It's, not, it's yelling at you now, but it's just a whisper in light of eternity. It is, it is a wisp of vapor. You'll get through it. You'll get through it. Look at verse 15. Though he flourishes among the reeds, an east wind will come. What, what country is said to be a beast among the reeds? You take your son, you put him in a basket, and you float him down the reeds. This is Egypt. Israel has turned to a pagan nation for help. And here it says, your pagan alliances will be blown away in the wind of Assyria. The wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness. God says, I can actually control the winds. You try to shepherd things that are like wind, that are, you can't control. You try to control political environments and, and you, you, you think that you can, you can't. But I can. God says, I can control the winds. And his fountain will become dry. Israel's spring will be dried up. It will plunder his treasury. Assyria will plunder his treasury of every precious article. I'm gonna take you branch and root into captivity. So the final symbol of divine discipline is a hot wind from the desert. Some of you feel that right now. It's not a ferocious beast. It's not a woman in labor who can't give birth. There's something God wants to do in your life and you're not letting God birth that better marriage, birth that better parenting, and you feel that, that's it's God working in your life. Some of you though, it's just a wind blowing and it's hot and it's dry and you're not paying attention to it. Verse 16, you, Samaria, will be held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. You don't think it's rebellion, what you're doing. Not showing up to worship, not seeking spiritual leadership, not giving to the things of the kingdom, not live. You think that those things are just God's like, okay, I'm okay, you're okay, I'm okay, we're good. No, no, it's rebellion. When you don't seek to let God rescue you, when you don't live in resurrection power, you're saying, God, all that you did, all that you stood for, all that you accomplished, it doesn't matter to my day-to-day life. And the truth is it does, it changes everything. They will fall by the sword. Here's what it means. The fountain will become dry. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women will be ripped open. Wow. The law of God said, if you continue, you will see things that will drive you mad. And these things at the end of this chapter will drive you mad. If you don't turn from your destructive path, you will get to a place like so many of your stories already are. I think of one in here whose marriage was completely destroyed, living out of a fridge in a, a, a week-to-week rental hotel, not spending, having any time with kids or family, and then came to the end of himself and finally listened. 
someone in our faith family. I'm thinking of others who at the third divorce said, maybe the problem is with me and how I choose. And so they started seeking spiritual guidance for the first time in their life. I've had, a, I've had three or four this last few years have said that. Said, I'm bad at choosing who to date and who not to date. Can you help me? And God says, amen, I can. Amen, he can. He can tell you how to find good relationships in dating, how to be a better parent. No, no, you're, the impossibility of life without God will lead you to this place every time. So at the end of the day, who is true? Are you true or is God true? God is faithful. Nothing Israel can do at this point can turn and reverse the certainty of their judgment, but you can. The New Testament says judgment has already fallen. Judgment has already had. It's already fallen on Jesus. The stinger's already there. All you gotta do is see it and believe it and live in light of it. Live in love like Jesus lives and loves. Let me end with this. I wanna call you, as we go into this next chapter, to a deeper commitment to the king this week, to be people of the Bible, to be people of purpose. Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz overcame the many obstacles that she encountered, no matter how daunting. No menacing trees throwing apples at her would stop her. No poppy fields of sleeping potions could could keep her down. No big intimidating door would keep her locked up. Nothing was going to stop her from moving toward her goal. She was focused and determined to get to where she was going. Where was she going? Home. Some of you do not have a spiritual home. You have a spiritual weekend house, cabin that you come to. This is not your spiritual home. I want you to make this your home. These people, your home, invest in the people of this faith family, invest in what God's doing. This is, that was a quote that I just read. Um, this book's called Toto's Reflections, The Leadership Lessons from the Wizard of Oz. The author writes in the voice of Toto, listen, values and beliefs were rooted in the notion of home as a place of security. And so we all got behind her to help her make the dream of going home to Kansas a reality. We knew where she wanted to go and we believed the dream with her. That's the essence of commitment. When we believe something so much that we start telling everyone around it about it, that's commitment. Commitment is accepting the leader's perspective and making it our own. When you've created commitment among those who follow you as leader, you can change anything. All right? These truths that we're looking at, these aren't small things. By not following them, not inviting your life in them, you're choosing the opposite. Let's pray. Lord, through your spirit, be a fork in the road here today. Hearing Nate's testimony of having a wake-up call that both at eight years old and then later in college, you reached into his mind and you pulled a, a cord and a light came on and he humbled himself before you. There's some in this room that need that desperately. Lord, there's no antics here. We're not manipulative in this leadership. It's just truth. And I pray that there would be that for people in here. There would be an aha moment and a commitment moment that they would give themselves to you anew, deny self-lordship, and embrace the King of Kings as the path and the plan of their life. Jesus, you're the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through you. No one lives a real life, a life that means something without you. And so we turn to you, and we hit the reset button again, and we say, lead us, Lord Jesus. Amen.